Listener Production. I'm singing in the rain. Put your hands on me, Jack. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I am your father. Oh, no. I'll have what she's having. Life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You're listening to some beautiful Hollywood moments there. But Jan Fran, you're going to tear it all apart in the briefing. Uh, The movies aren't what they used to be. You know, we don't quite watch them the same way that we used to, do we? I mean, cinema attendance has been declining for years. This was even before COVID hit. The Oscars, supposed to be Hollywood's Night of Nights, had its second lowest ratings ever. Do you want to know when the lowest ratings were? Last year. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Two years in a row, baby. Celebs aren't really movie stars anymore. They're TikTokers, which is why we don't know any of their names And streaming platforms are taking over Hollywood studios as these key players in the film game. And I don't know about you, but I can't sit through a movie without looking at my phone. So I'd much prefer to watch a television show. Which is why on this episode of The Briefing, we're asking, are we witnessing the end of Hollywood as we know it? And if so, what is taking its place? I don't think Hollywood will ever die, but I just think our perception and reality of it and what that means is going to shift and evolve in the same way that it shifted and evolved from silent films to talkies and the way it shifted from black and white to colour. Mm. All right, a very interesting conversation about Hollywood with Jan Fran right after today's headlines. It is Friday the 8th of April. Is he calling the election? Is he not calling the election? That's what we're waiting for. Although the PM's election schedule could be delayed now after the High Court agreed to hear a challenge to his intervention in New South Wales pre-selections. That is due to happen later today. Yeah, many people expected the Prime Minister to call the election today, but with this court case pending, a number of candidates will be unsure of their future. So Morrison installed these candidates in New South Wales seats Uh, And in doing that, overrided the normal member ballot voting system. And that's what's being challenged. He's moved there. Yeah, so there was a party member um, by the name of Matthew Kamenzuli. Um, He challenged the appointments in court. Now, that challenge was thrown out. However, he did appeal to the High Court. And that's the challenge that's going to be considered in Sydney at 4pm this afternoon, which is supposed to be right around the time that Morrison is expected to call the election. So he was quizzed on, you know, when he's going to do that yesterday. This is what he said. We're going to do this every day. The election will be called when, you know, I'm in a position to go to the Governor-General. It's almost three years and at, at, by mid-May um, when, uh, from the last election, I said we would run a term, do the job and go to the Australian people. Yeah, so the speculation is now moving towards Sunday to be the day when he'll call the election, probably for May 14. He's got another challenge at the moment, a lot of people coming out um, criticising his character and so there's been other Liberal MPs rallying around him in support. Here's one of them, Senator Anne Rushton on Q&A on the ABC last night. On the eve of an election, we start seeing these things coming out of the woodwork. Um, you know, I would question uh, whether it is actually a, a political hit job. Yeah, traditional wisdom would have it that you call the election when you're feeling good, you're not under fire, you're not being challenged from all corners. And, you know, the PM has been putting it off for, I guess, as long as he can, really. So you mentioned there that the election has to take place, or will rather take place, either May 14 or May 21, basically 
it has to take place before or on May 21. And there has to be a 33-day election campaign, a minimum of 33 days. So time is really ticking for Scott Morrison. Flood warnings, evacuation orders, more of the same for residents of parts of New South Wales this morning. Suburbs on the outskirts of Sydney are on flood watch after record-breaking rain lashed the east coast yesterday. So suburbs around Sutherland, Cornell, Bonnet Bay, Chipping Norton, uh, all out in the south and southwest of the city, as well as residents near the Hawkesbury-Nepean rivers who've been told floodwaters could reach uh, the levels from last month and 1988 today. We've got uh, in excess of 500 um, SES volunteers out on the ground at the moment, supported by a whole range of uh, other emergency services. Uh, We've been responding um, already and we'll continue to respond as long as we need to. That was SES New South Wales Acting Commissioner Daniel Austin speaking on the project there. Look, there is some good news. The heavy rain is expected to ease this morning, but showers will persist across the state. So that means across northern New South Wales as well, which we know has been very badly hit by flooding in the last few months. Showers and storms will extend from southern parts of Queensland through New South Wales and into Victoria, with storms possibly turning severe with heavy rainfall. These storms may impact northeast New South Wales as well, affecting local waterways and impacting ongoing cleanup and recovery efforts. Yeah, that's Miriam Bradbury from the bomb. So a bit of concerning news for that part of northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. Um, Sydney hit a pretty interesting milestone yesterday, got its average total annual rainfall and it's only April the 7th. So it's just been a hugely wet La Nina um, forecasted to keep going right through April. So, yeah, it's just a crazy situation for millions of people to live through. And just on the floods, um, there has been a bit of toing and froing on a, a floods recovery package um, from the Queensland government. So yesterday we brought you a story that the federal government was not going to chip in to the $741 million package. Uh, there's been a little bit of a turnaround in the last 24 hours. The federal government now going halves with the Queensland government um, to effectively help Queenslanders rebuild or raise their damaged homes. So I think the PM was under a bit of pressure to do that there. And no doubt the state of Queensland, which was very disappointed yesterday, smiling a little bit more today. Yeah, that's a really interesting decision by Scott Morrison to back down on on funding um, half of that package. I would imagine, and I'm speculating here, that having the Queensland government bagging you on TV for not supporting Queenslanders was a bad look for the Liberal Party heading into a federal election. Now, that's a little cynical, but why else would you leave it so late before actually deciding to chip in and help? And the United Nations General Assembly has voted to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. This happened during a meeting overnight. 93 countries voted in support of the move. There were 24 who voted against and 58 countries abstained, which effectively means they said nothing. Yeah, so that means they hit the two-thirds quota to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. Um, This involved Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, the US, and they cited the list of atrocities and severe violations of international law 
for the reason for that. There's been some horrible images coming out of the suburb of Busha, which is um, in and around Kiev, of civilian bodies in the streets, of burnt-out cars, severely damaged buildings, which is one of the reasons why the council's made this move. Now, basically, this is a council that investigates breaches of human rights. It doesn't really have much power to enforce any findings, and it has come under fire in recent years for actually having members of the council who have terrible human rights records, um, including countries like Saudi Arabia. So the move is mostly symbolic and I think just further isolates Russia from the rest of the world. And interest rate rises on the cards. Um, there's a lot of speculation around this at the moment. Now we have the nation's big four banks all saying they expect interest rates to rise at least four times over the next six months. So um, depending how big those rises are, usually they're 25 basis points. That would be a whole 1% by the end of the year. It would be the first interest rate rise since November 2010, um, which means uh, a lot of us aren't that accustomed to interest rate rises. There's a million mortgage holders who won't have lived through an interest rate rise until this next one comes. Yeah, this is going to be one of the big things that we're going to be talking about in the lead up to the election. And we're already talking about it really is the cost of living. And there's been so much pressure put on the cost of living from, um, you know, the war in Ukraine and petrol supplies. This is really going to be another way that uh, Australians are going to feel the pinch, I think, when those interest rates start to go up. And as you say, Tom, they haven't gone up in more than a decade. So if you're not accustomed to, to having to pay a little bit more on your mortgage, you should probably get used to it in the next six months by the sound of it. And some sad news for the Australian music industry. An absolute legend, Ken West, uh, one of the two founders of The Big Day Out, has died aged 64. Yeah, so West, along with his partner Vivian Lees, founded The Big Day Out. Um, it was one of the first, you know, really big summer music festivals. The idea of Big Day Out was about the length of the day, not the size of the show. It was trying to get people down at 11 o'clock in the morning, not... 8 o'clock at night to see the one out. Uh, so that's Ken himself um, describing the festival. It was just an absolutely enormous cultural icon, a rite of passage, this festival, and this amazing man behind it was such a character. Um, one of the great stories of the festival is that they booked Nirvana just as they were blowing up. So I think they got them for a pretty good fee, and then they came out in 1992 um, as the world was realising they were the biggest band of the moment. Wow, that's that's one way to get on the front foot, isn't it? <laughs> um, festivals ran from 92 to 2014. It's had a pretty decent run and, you know, along with Nirvana featured bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, Bjork, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Patti Smith. So massive names there. I missed all of the big days out. I didn't go to one of them, but I assume you did, Tom. Yeah, I went to a couple of the Sydney ones. They were just absolutely huge. They hit every uh, major Australian capital city. It was the first time we really had one of these big touring summer festivals. Um, I actually interviewed Ken West a number of times and um, he was pretty rogue. He was a wild man, very funny. Um, he, he had one of those gruff... Uh, music industry voices, a bit like Michael Chugg or Michael Gudinski. And, and like those two men, and RIP to Michael Gudinski quite recently, he he had that sort of rough and ready voice, but he was actually um, underneath that a very, very smart man, a very good operator 
who had a very good read on culture. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really sad moment. Um, he's died too young at 64, um, but he has made an incredible contribution to Australian culture and the Australian music industry. It meant that a lot of up-and-coming Australian bands got to play a huge touring music festival alongside their heroes, and that brought them to Australian audiences they might not have um, played to before, and that was a fantastic thing for the growth of those smaller and, and mid-level Aussie bands. And mostly it's just amazing for the music fans of Australia who got to see these huge international acts rocking out in a big, sweaty mosh pit. Sounds like we need a big day out 2.0. Bring it back. I mean, there's always been rumours that it, that it would come back. And um, yeah, coming out of the pandemic, I think, I think that's what we need. I think we need to get in a sweaty mosh pit and get back to normal, <laughs> get back to the 90s. All right, Jan, I'm going to jump out of here and leave you to dissect and um, not destroy Hollywood, but chart maybe a rough patch. Hi, it's Jan here. This was the moment that everyone remembers from this year's Oscars. Oh, wow! Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Yes, when Hollywood actor Will Smith slapped comedian Chris Rock on stage for making a joke about his wife, Jada. However, there was another history-making moment that night that didn't quite get the attention that it deserved. So Apple became the first ever streaming service to win Best Picture for Coda. Are you excited to announce Best Picture? And the Oscar goes to... Okay, Coda. (laughs) Now that honour is usually reserved for established Hollywood studios. This is one of the few things that's chipping away at the power of Hollywood. So the question is, are we witnessing the death of an industry by a thousand cuts or are concerns about the end of Hollywood grossly exaggerated? Well, to help us answer that question, we've got Maria Lewis here with us. She is an author and a screenwriter. She has been a journo for over 16 years covering film and pop culture. Maria, welcome to The Briefing. Let's start with the big picture here. Traditionally, how does Hollywood work? Like who or what are the major players? Well, usually traditionally we think about it from a studio system, right? So you have big big name, big budget studios, places you've heard of before, like your Disney's, your Warner Brothers, MGM back in the day. MGM now, interestingly, just got bought by, uh, well, their back catalogue got bought by Amazon for $8.5 billion. So that gives you an indication about how the quote-unquote traditional Hollywood studio system is. But it's important to note that that's really just a Western perspective. Bollywood is the biggest producer of film and television in the world at the moment. And that is a completely different system from a completely different part of the world. So the traditional Hollywood system is what's kind of considered, perceived as the dominant one. But there are lots of different sort of iterations of that all around the world, some and many that are more profitable. The Chinese market, for instance, is is massive. They're mo- making their own homegrown blockbusters that gross literally billions of dollars and have absolutely nothing to do with the traditional Hollywood system. So in the past few years, we kind of keep hearing that cinema attendance is in decline. Has COVID put the final nail in the coffin there, do you reckon? A hundred percent, particularly within the megaplex system, COVID has kind of been the death rattle, if you will. 
cinema attendance was already in decline with the, not only the invention of streaming, I think streaming is obviously the dominant topic that takes over when it's talking about decreasing numbers in theatres. But the other thing to consider is that home setups now are just so good. You can get very close to the theatrical experience at home on a reasonable budget with your setup, whether that's sound, whether that's visuals, whether that's projectors, any stuff like that. So now that it's more accessible than ever to have a theatrical experience at home, it makes it less appealing for people to have a theatrical experience in a literal theatre as well as the theatrical window closing. What I mean by that is, for instance, Titanic is a really good example. When Titanic hit cinemas back in the day, 1999, what a year, it was in cinemas for six months. And the only way you could see that film was if you went to a physical movie theatre. Now the theatrical window is maximum, usually around like a month, a month and a half. So if a film isn't doing day and date, for instance, Something like June was released in theatres, but it was also released on HBO Max in the US and in Canadian markets. So people could watch it at home on HBO Max or they could go and see it in a theatre. So that was a day and date release. But others, they'll only be exclusively available in a theatre for like a month, month and a half. So people will be like, oh, you know what? I'm actually just going to wait. And now in the time of COVID, it's a matter of safety. They're like, why would I risk it for a biscuit? when I can just stay at home and watch this in a very close to theatrical experience in the safety of my own home without people chewing popcorn in my ear or getting into fight with teenagers at Fast and Furious 9, which is something I for sure did. (laughs) And you can have that experience as well, like for cheaper because you don't have to pay for film snacks. It's Mm -hmm. really, really expensive for a family to go to the movies. And it's a combination of factors rather than just the easy answer, which is streaming. It's it's technology, it's the pandemic, it's streaming, it's sort of all of these things. I think it's shifting and it's evolving. I mean, this idea of Hollywood being dead, can it also just be different? You know, people sort of thought that the talkies were going to be the death of Hollywood and it, they weren't. It just the business shifted and evolved. It's interesting that you mention things shifting and changing, not necessarily dying. Where do you see films shifting to? If the death of Hollywood is not nigh, where does it shift to? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I think this idea of, and you'll hear it from a lot of studios now, they'll have what they call like a hybrid release strategy, (laughs) which always makes me laugh because I always think about it in the context of the science fiction film. I'm like, a hybrid? So it's like, you know, part werewolf, part tentacles? That's not what they mean at all. But they mean, you know, a combination of (laughs) we'll have a theatrical window or we'll do like a few eventized studio releases. For instance, there's this film called Fresh that came out, went straight to streaming on Disney+. And I think the Disney Plus situation is a really interesting example because they merged with Fox. Fox was one of the last sort of traditional Hollywood studios. Disney and Fox merged. That's a certain, like, viewed a certain way by the public. But one of the things that Disney gains from that is Fox's back catalogue. And when Amazon bought MGM for $8.5 billion, everyone's like, that's crazy. What money to spend? That's nuts but the thing that amazon bought with that was 4000 movies 17000 hours of television they bought a bank that a lot of the new streaming services don't have they're desperate for content so that is why you see a lot of these streaming services merging with older hollywood studios who can't necessarily 
make the kind of movies that they want to make anymore. So you get these quote unquote hybrid situations. But I think stuff like that's going to become more and more common. I have a lot of trouble watching movies from start to finish without looking at my phone and without getting distracted. How much do you think the fact that our attention span has been shot for so many reasons, including incessant use of social media, how much is that affecting the way that we consume film? What is really fascinating to me is I haven't I don't think film has figured it out yet and I don't know if it ever can because it's like, you know, stop making three-hour The Batman and continue to stick to your sort of 90-minute window films is sort of the way you would do that. But you try telling a a male Hollywood filmmaker that he can't have his Batman movie be three hours. I mean, good luck with that. But for TV series, what's been really interesting is I've watched a shift happen among a lot of the major streaming services in particular where they have originally it used to be an entire show would be dropped in a weekend, right? Take a Stranger Things. You get the whole season in a weekend. And so people would binge it, right? But what has been really interesting is a lot of streaming services have reverted to what was previously a broadcast model, which is releasing episodes week to week. And I think that's twofold. Number one, easier to keep people's attention. They're more likely to put their phone down and to just engage with the piece of media if they know they only have one episode to watch. On the question of whether is Hollywood dying, is it dying a death by a thousand cuts, are we seeing the end of it? What do you reckon? No, I think we're seeing a redefinition and an evolution of it. I mean, this is all, you know, fairly recent in mind to the Oscars, which have been going since the 20s, right? But people be like, oh, Hollywood's dying because nobody watches the Oscars. Well, Nobody watches any broadcast television. If you look at Super Bowl ratings, which are always considered the big daddy of ratings, they're down. And, you know, people who would tune in to watch Grey's Anatomy, you look at the numbers for Grey's Anatomy now, those would be cancelable numbers five years ago. Shows like Succession, which, again, like considered these big phenomenons, the numbers for the ratings for a show like Succession six years ago would have been enough to cancel it. So people don't watch broadcast television in that same way anymore. But that doesn't mean that people aren't engaged in the content. It just means that it's shifting. There's a lot of people, particularly diverse filmmakers, who are getting opportunities in the streaming age that they wouldn't get before, largely because streamers are now being forced to look outside of the traditional filmmakers who would traditionally supply them content because they need more of it for their services and opportunities just didn't exist like that before. So I think there's obviously there's good and bad for everything. I know that's kind of feels like a non-answer in some ways, but I just think it's shifting and it's changing. Even look at the way that people are, are going back to the drive-in. Yes. Okay. That's spurned by the pandemic, but it's also spurned by this idea of nostalgia in the same way people are, are boosting vinyl sales. I don't think Hollywood will ever die but I just think our perception and reality of it and what that means is going to shift and evolve in the same way that it shifted and evolved from silent films to talkies and the way it shifted from black and white to colour. That was Maria Lewis, author, screenwriter, pop culture aficionado, talking about not so much the death of Hollywood, but rather the pivoting of Hollywood, which I know is a word that we're not supposed to use anymore because it's been so overused during COVID. But like all industries, Hollywood is in the midst of a massive disruption. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll stop 
watching films, but I guess engaging with the content differently. All right, that is it for our Monday to Friday show. As always, we've got the weekend briefing ready for your ears. Tomorrow with Jamila Risby Jam, who have you got on? This weekend, my guest is Darcy Vessio, who is, of course, a star AFLW player for Carlton. They were, in fact, signed as a marquee player when the league made its debut. I remember watching Darcy play against Collingwood at Icon Park. That game was a lockout. There were so many people there. They had to lock the gates. No one expected women's footy to be that popular. But then last year, Darcy told their social media followers that they're not in fact a woman, they are non-binary. And so we get into the complexity of being non-binary in the world of sport where the gender binary kind of informs everything. This is a really fascinating, excellent conversation. Looking forward to that one tomorrow with Jamila Risby and looking forward to seeing you guys on Monday. Catch you soon, bye. Listener.